I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi, everyone. I'm delighted you've tuned in to today's episode of Defining Moments. We are coupling this episode with two other conversations hosted by Dr. Jackie Wolf on her podcast, Lifespan, which is also produced by WOUB Public Media. Today, Jackie is talking to us about both her personal experiences and her professional scholarly expertise in birthing practices in the U.S. She's a renowned historian and professor in the Department of Social Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. She's the author of dozens of journal articles and three book-length monographs, the most recent of which is published by John Hopkins University Press, originally came out in 2018, is now widely available in paperback, titled Cesarean Section, An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. It's really a delight, Jackie, to have you on um, Defining Moments podcast today. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Mm. So, Jackie, in a recent article published by Health Communication, and for our listeners, you can publicly, freely access this um, article, thanks to Taylor and Francis, our partner. In your recent article, you offer us a glimpse into the why and the how of really your focus um, in your doctoral work on the history of medicine. For our listeners who haven't read that piece yet, I, I want to read just a quote that you start with. You write, while the demands of our careers and the needs of our families often conflict, They can dovetail in enriching ways. That happened to me in graduate school, and I've been reaping the benefits of the melding ever since. Beautiful writing drew me in from the beginning. I'm hoping you can share with us the story that you tell about the birth, if you will, of your dissertation topic on on the history of breastfeeding practices and your ongoing interest in in the history of of women's health. Yeah, I I didn't even know history of medicine was a field when I Mm. started graduate school. Mm -hmm. I did not study to be a historian of medicine, and many historians of medicine, you know, share similar stories where they kind of tripped across the field or became interested in a topic, and it turned them into a historian of medicine. I was actually studying to be an environmental historian. Um, Mm. That was, that at the time was a fairly new field. This is the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, It's a field that that looks at how humans um, change landscapes. Um, Mm. And I was at the dissertation stage, hunting for a dissertation topic. And I had, uh, when I sat for my master's exams, I was eight months pregnant. Mm. 
So I was breastfeeding a baby and caring for a baby and learning how to be a new mom during all my PhD coursework. So when I was done with my coursework, my my three-year-old, no, she wasn't even three then. Oh, yeah, she was three. She was sleeping. She was taking a nap in the next room. And I was studying soil maps on my study floor, thinking I was going to do a dissertation on the Dust Bowl drought in Oklahoma. (laughs) So literally, I'm sitting there looking at these soil maps in total despair, thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to read these maps. I have no affinity for this topic whatsoever. Mm. And literally sitting next to the soil maps was the my well-worn copy of The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding, which is La Leche League's bestseller that probably every new breastfeeding mom has thumbed through at some point. And I said to myself, it was just this moment in time, I said to myself, breastfeeding. I bet no one has studied the history of breastfeeding practices in the United States. And it, literally, it was that that one moment. Um, little did I know, I was I had turned myself into a medical historian. I was about to embark on a topic that was incredibly complex. <clears throat> I literally thought that I would be writing a dissertation about post-World War II America, because I assumed that's when most women began to bottle feed. But as I began to study the topic, I was going back and back and back further in time. And I realized, no, it was really the late 19th century when women began to go from human milk and breastfeeding to animal milk and bottle feeding. And it was a fascinating, I mean, I I still occasionally will do do research on the history of breastfeeding. It's become that fascinating a topic. So that that that's the story. That was the mm. moment in time when I became a medical historian. Mm. From soil maps to breastfeeding practices. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. a shift. Yeah, quite a shift. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it's really clear both in hearing you and in reading your work that this is this is not just a mere scholarly exercise for you. Right. This is also personal. I <laughs> you know, I I, ha- I have to say, Lynn. Um, you know, when I when I uh, mentor graduate students or even um, you know new faculty, newly minted faculty, the one thing I tell them is, if you can find a, a field that you're passionate about, you, that is ninety percent of becoming a successful academic. Um, little did I know. I mean, I my passion for this topic and for women's health and for childbirth has never ebbed at all. So, um, you know, it, it's been kind of like going through an, the, the wrong end of a funnel rather than, than things closing in and narrowing. I, I just find more and more and more questions to ask and more sources to use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear you. And I offer similar advice to graduate students. I feel like if, if you look around in the spaces in which you live and in the interactions you um, engage in, right? Life presents you with so many interesting questions that merit our attention and merit our attention from different scholarly standpoints. And I think it's key that curiosity is key to a sustainable life as, as a teacher scholar. And to don't back, right. And don't back away from the hard questions because yeah. <clears throat> so, so, so many people, they'll take the easier route and think, oh, that's a, that's a simple thing to do. No, it's actually the harder stuff that 
first of all, becomes the most interesting. And also, if you want to be success, as a, successful as an academic, it also, uh, not just the most rewarding, but it will bring you the most attention because you're really looking at new questions and developing new answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what I can't imagine and where my experience diverges from yours, I can't imagine being in a doctoral program, doing coursework while mothering and doing a dissertation on a topic that is connected, right, to to my life world. So talk to us about what that what what that was like and now as you're mothering your daughter Cora as she begins her life as a mother of Asher, right? Across your lifespan. Talk to me about that. Well, well first of all, um I wouldn't necessarily recommend becoming a new mother and trying to write a dissertation and finishing <laughs> PhD coursework at the same time. I mean, these these are two activities. What both activities suck time like a black hole sucks light. I mean, it and to do both of them at once. People ask me how did you do it and all I can say is I have no idea how I did it. I have no idea. Um, but I think that subconsciously, that's why I melded the two, because it was the only way I could get control of mm. both of these activities, new motherhood and writing a dissertation. So so um, that, that's my short answer. Mm. There was another, what was the other part of your question? You know, it's just that your journey now has evolved uh, into being a grandmother, right? Exactly. And I'll tell you, when Cora was pregnant, and you know, I mean, you have a daughter as well. Uh So you know, as a mother, you know, certainly you're the most important role model for your for your for your daughter. There's no question a mother is the most important role model for 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 a daughter. But at the same time, you can't you have to be um, very selective about your advice, because at a certain point in their lives, they're very independent. And, and, you know, you don't want to foist your vision on them of anything, whether it's, you know, what they should do in life or what a good mother looks like or what a good birth looks like, or you want to be careful. So when she was pregnant, oh my goodness, I, you know, I mean, I said to myself, yes, I know so much professionally about childbirth, but it's, it's Cora's birth. And I, in no way, unless she asks for my advice, I'm, I'm not going to hand it to her. And I, I tell this story in the article where literally there was one moment she had gone, um, and this was even before she was pregnant. She had gone in to see her longtime gynecologist to kind of just get a general checkup because, you know, when you, when you're planning on getting pregnant, you want to make sure everything is you know, you know, you're that you're really well, and you want to make sure your immunizations are up to date. And so she went to her gynecologist, kind of feeling really excited about sharing this news to her with her that she was ready to be a new mom, she was going to have her IUD removed. Um, And the the gynecologist reacted to her, Cora actually called me, she was crying. And it was right after the appointment, I couldn't understand what she was saying. Um, between sobs, she was trying to get this story out. And it turned out the gynecologist had, rather than reacting in the really happy way Cora had anticipated, you know, sharing this moment with her, um, that the doctor had began to, to, to um, give her kind of a, a list. The gynecologist said to her, well, first of all, 
Uh, yes, I'll remove the IUD, but you can't have unprotected sex for four months because I want you to take prenatal vitamins for four months. Now, Cora is a robustly healthy young woman <laughs> who has a great diet. You know, the doctor didn't even ask her what your diet is like. You know, that was, mm. the, that was the instruction. Plus, these days, I mean, the thing they're worried about is folic acid, because we know now that that causes birth defects. But folic acid now is in everything. You can't mm. avoid folic acid for that very reason, because we want to prevent birth defects. So she was given that first instruction, no unprotected sex for four months, you got to take prenatal vitamins. And then she said, and, and we want to do a full genetic workup on you to make sure that she's already anticipating. Here I study for a living. I study how we pathologize childbirth. Well, this doctor was pathologizing conception, was mm. assuming somehow that Cora had some kind of terrible uh, hidden genes that they had to be tested for. And then she said to her, and if you have any of those bad genes, then we're going to have to test your husband. And if he has any bad genes that match your bad genes, then you're going to have to conceive through in vitro fertilization. Can you imagine? Mm. This is someone coming in to have their IUD removed, and she's already imagining genetic tragedy and thinking about having to, to conceive in a Petri dish. Uh -huh. So Cora calls me sobbing. And says to me, do I really need to do all these things? And I said to her, one sentence, I said, the only thing you have to do is find another doctor. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I felt a little bit more empowered to give her advice. And I went online, I found a couple of midwifery practices where she lived. And I sent her the links. And I said, you might want to check out midwives. And just avoid obstetricians altogether. And that's what she ended up doing. She gave birth at a birthing center. I was there. Her mother-in-law was there. Of course, her husband was there. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. I consider it a gift that you have shared that story now. Um, you and Cora also co-narrate that story in an episode that we're going to couple with this one. And so we hear her voice as well. And one thing that lingered with me in listening to her and to you is how something that was a, a natural, um, joyful um, transition in life that a, that a couple was looking forward to becomes problem saturated through the medicalization of it, right? Um, and and Cora is honest about how how she felt after that first appointment is very different than how she felt when she when she walked in that office, and and that's disappointing. Exactly. It really, it, it destroyed what to her was a very precious moment that she was anticipating. You know, mm -hmm. she really liked the gynecologist and felt like, um, you know, this was a moment that she was going to share with her, you know, one woman to another. Oh boy, I want to be a mom. I'm ready to get pregnant. And all she got thrown in her face was, this is all you have to worry about. And the list is very long and the list is very serious. I I was I was stunned by this. As much as I've studied this and was aware of it, the fact that conception is being pathologized because we we now are able to very easily test for genetic anomalies, it it just stunned me. It absolutely mm -hmm. stunned me. Mm -hmm. 
And just to, to encourage our listeners to engage the other podcasts, um, when you do, you you really hear Cora bravely talk about how she chose not to get the results of some of the tests that they ran um, as as a response to having feeling, but just feeling so violated in that process. And it just takes a lot of courage to to make that choice. Well, I should also add that that was definitely her very strong feeling at first. She she was kind of outraged. She felt this had been, she had been coerced into doing it. I mean, she had the blood drawn at the very same appointment um, and she felt violated and she felt like she had no choice, that she hadn't been given an option. And um, she was pretty resolved that she wouldn't get the test results. But then she started to get phone messages you have to call us. A few weeks later, you have to call us, you have to call us, you have to call us. And she had one frozen moment and where she thought, oh my goodness, what if something terrible, what if there's some terrible news I need to know? And she actually did end up calling and got the test results. And sure enough, as we all do, she had a couple of pretty two, as I recall, pretty horrific recessive genes, one of which you know, if she if the child had two of those, um, wouldn't live long after birth. The other had to do with an odd syndrome where you're both deaf and blind. Um, and then she resolved, what she did resolve is that her husband wasn't going to be tested. She just decided this is ridiculous. You know, the odds of him having the same genes are, are, are close to nil. And that's where she held the line. But, it, but the story really shows you how, how women are feeling coerced these days, uh, re- women of reproductive age. Yeah. And what are the consequences for us? What are the consequences for them as mothers and for humanity as a whole when we start pathologizing our own, uh, the human genome? Right, right. And it hasn't always been this way, right? And part of what I love about your work are the journeys that you take us on, whether we're looking at uh, cesarean sections across time, um, social birthing across time, breastfeeding across time. I, I feel like part of what you bring to a medical school, you bring to women in gender and sexuality studies, to, to history programs, is this value-added perspective that honors archival research that acknowledges that that practices are socio-cultural experiences. In this case, they're both biological, they're technological, but they're infused with meaning because of the broader cultures in which we live. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you see the value-added nature of a historically rich perspective on practices like birthing? Oh my goodness. Um, what a wonderful question. Um, and you know, you're inviting me to talk about so much, but <clears throat> let me answer that question by talking about something <clears throat> that we in the U.S. all take for granted. And that is the coupling of obstetrics and gynecology. We mm. think of those as two specialties that have an absolutely normal link. And of course, when the people who want to they treat women and, and focus their medical practice on women, of course they would become specialists in both obstetrics and gynecology. 
so this answers your question. Um, one of the ways that history, history of medicine can bring us such rich understanding of both the way medicine is practiced and the way um, patients are treated is not necessarily natural or even good for us at all. It really is reflective of all kinds of different facets of society and culture. Because the coupling, I would argue very strongly, of obstetrics and gynecology is not the least bit natural and has been very, very damaging to women's health. Mm. And let me let me tell you that story of how it happened. Um, originally, up until the, the early 1930s, you were either an obstetrician or you were a gynecologist, it, 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 or you felt like you were more of a gynecologist than, than an obstetrician or more of an obstetrician than a gynecologist. There, there, was, there were no doctors in the U.S. Who, who, who did both in any kind of an equal manner. And it wasn't until 1921 that the American Medical Association set up a committee on graduate training in gynecology and obstetrics and asked those doctors who were a mix of both gynecologists and obstetricians to make some recommendations. And they recommended two things. They recommended that that in the nation's teaching hospitals, again, this is the early 1920s, that there'd be one department set up for both specialties. So, so it would be a department of both obstetrics and gynecology. And they also recommended that there be three-year hospital-based residencies um, established in obstetrics and gynecology, both. Um, and this was the first time then the training began, hospital-based training of obstetricians and gynecologists and the third medical specialty board set up in the United States behind um, otolaryngology and at the moment I'm blanking on the other one. But the third one was the American Board of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And the first thing they did was they moved to limit certification in obstetrics and gynecology to doctors who would only treat women. Now, the reason that was so significant is before then, general practitioners always delivered babies. It was a huge part of their practice. But suddenly, when the board of obstetricians and gynecologists moved to limit that training to only doctors who limited their practice to women, all general practitioners in the U.S. couldn't deliver babies anymore. Hmm. So, so they really muscled them out. And that, I mean, that, that limited women's options a lot. It also helped muscle midwives out of the business too. But the reason it was so damaging to conjoin those two specialties is, think about it for a minute. Obstetrics and all the training having to do with childbirth is really about physiology. It's about learning about how women's bodies work. Gynecology focuses on pathology. Gynecology looks at reproductive cancers, um, looks at what can go wrong with the female body. So when you meld these two practices, the obstetrician who relies on physiology and the gynecologist who studies pathology, what happened was, was that the pathologically focused gynecologist trumped the physiologically oriented obstetrician. So mm. you suddenly had women doctors who focused, as you've hinted on throughout our conversation, Lynn, began to focus on pathology over <laughs> physiology, studying what can possibly go wrong with this birth. Now, the vast majority of births go perfectly right. 
um, when there's not heavy duty medical interference and when you have a very, very competent uh, medical specialist, whether that's a general practitioner or an obstetrician or a midwife, someone who really knows birth well there to, to nurture uh, the birth process um, and to support women, to give women an emotional support. But we completely distorted the field by melding those two specialties because suddenly it was all about pathology. Mm-hmm. You also introduce to readers the concept of social birthing. And like other birthing practices, this has a rich historical tradition in the U.S., but it's a term that might be unfamiliar to listeners. And you offer this as a way to better the birthing process. And in advancing that argument, you, again, weave between your own personal experiences of social birthing and your knowledge as a historian of medicine. Can, can we dive deeper into social birthing as an alternative way to think about childbirth? Uh, I, I would love to do that. If, if, if I can just convince one woman, woman about the um, importance of social birth through this podcast, it, 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 uh, it would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, social birth is actually a term coined by another medical historian, Judith Walzer Levitt. Um, and she referred to the births prior to the move to the hospital. And you have to realize um, it wasn't until the until 1939 that that half of births occurred in the hospital. And it wasn't really until after World War II that the vast majority of births occurred in the hospital. Before that, the vast majority of births in the U.S. occurred at home. Uh-huh. And the way they usually worked, um, and I'm talking about the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, is that women look forward to births. Um, certainly there would be a medical attendant there. There would be a designated, usually a midwife, um, possibly a general practitioner if one were available. But we were a largely rural country, so you couldn't always have a physician. So it would be a lay midwife, someone who really had, through experience, learned how to assist at births. And other women would gather, relatives, neighbors, friends. Um, and it was a women looked forward to it. It was a time for women to certainly support and take care of the woman who was in labor, um, help take care of her family, cook for her, um, but also a time to socialize, to see other women. Again, largely rural areas, so people you know live far apart. So it was a great time to gather. You know, women wrote about it in their diaries and in family letters with great joy, and it was a, it was an occasion to look forward to. And the reason I think it was so significant too is that even before women gave birth themselves, they had observed other women giving birth. And mm-hmm. to me, that is so important. For me personally, I had I had been to three births of friends before I was pregnant and gave birth myself. And those women were such great role models. I have never been at a birth where any kind of pain medication was used, any there was no epidural. Um, and I'm not, you know, touting that as something women should necessarily aspire to. I'm only explaining it because it didn't occur to me that I would need pain meds. Because I had observed these other women who were very on top of their labor. And believe me, once you've given birth, you know how hard it is. I'm not trying to whitewash that. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I remember 
the, one of my friends who I had been to two of her births and she was at my birth as well. And when she walked in the room, um, I was well into labor and I looked at her. I, I could, you can barely talk when you're in the middle of a contraction because they're so intense. I looked at her and I said, I cannot believe you've done this four times. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 so I remember that so well, how intense it is, how, but you know, it didn't, since I'd observed them and I realized I understood the physicality of birth. I understood the rhythm of birth. I knew exactly what I would experience when I understood that it took a long time that I couldn't expect it to be over soon. And just knowing what to expect helped me get through it. Plus I knew it was finite as intense as it is. This isn't like, you know, a terrible back spasm that you don't, you know, and you live with, you live in a bubble of pain for days and days and days or a horrible ear infection, or it's not like that. You know, this is finite. And at the very end, you're holding a baby and you go, Corey describes this in the podcast I did with her too. You know, you go from this intense, intense experience to it's over like flipping out of a switch. It is totally over. Mm. Um, if, if you've had a spontaneous vaginal birth. And um, anyway, I can't tell you how much a social birth, being there with a friend, observing. Um, and I've been to birth since I gave birth myself too. But that helped me so much get through my own birth. And I really believe in the past, it's helped women you know, centuries ago get through birth because they understood birth. It didn't hold fear for them because it wasn't something hidden. It wasn't something, you know, that, that, uh, that you didn't, it was part of daily life. Hi folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Jackie Wolf, a historian and professor of social medicine at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. We've been talking about the dovetailing between Jackie's personal experiences and the scholarship on the history of birthing and breastfeeding in the U.S. We're coupling this episode with two conversations hosted by Jackie on a podcast she produces titled Lifespan. On our Facebook page, we provide links to these podcasts and to her recent article published in Health Communication. Remember her recently published book, Cesarean Section, An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, is now available via paperback. Okay, back to our conversation. My gut is that among the other social forces at play that shape our understanding, our experience, what becomes a dominant practice, what doesn't, is how we also think about pain in our culture and how our orientation to pain has shifted over time. Um, we also have bureaucratic instrumental rationalities or ways of knowing that come into play that interface with the physiological, the pathological orientations or otherwise. And so knowing, right, that um, most births happen at particular points in the day. And at this time of day might be when doctors typically are, are leaving, right, at the, at the end of their typical workday, or that 
there's a certain amount of time that's allocated for, for people to be in a, in a hospital bed. All of those other ways of knowing also are forces that intersect with um, the experience of childbirth. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's so interesting, you know, you're bringing up our attitude toward pain too. We are essentially taught, and, I, and I've actually heard doctors teach this to medical students, um, because one of the important things for doctors is to gauge pain, you know, on a scale of one to 10. Patients have, you know, often been asked a scale of one to 10, um, you know, how, how intense is this pain? And one of the things I've actually heard doctors say this to students, for women, it's easy. For women who have given birth, because you can say to them, you know, the most intense pain they've ever, ever felt in their lives was childbirth, which is such a terrible message to send to people. Because first of all, yes, childbirth is unbelievably intense. But frankly, I've had way worse pains. I mean, a back spasm is a way worse. It's like being struck by lightning. Mm. And childbirth, you know, it, it the pain builds slowly. It There's a real rhythm to the birth. Yes, it reaches a plateau that is phenomenally intense. But usually that's the shortest part of labor. But see, women don't understand that. When we're told the most intense pain you'll, you'll ever feel is childbirth, that is really scary, really, mm-hmm. really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in a hospital, Lynn, you're absolutely right. All kinds of medical culture things play into this. Because first of all, uh, um, in hospitals... I mean, thank goodness now women can have anyone with them they want in the hospital. They can pretty much bring, you know, obviously their partner, um, but, you know, also friends, their own mother, relatives, whoever they want to be there. This is pretty recent in American history. It was, you know, it was really a a thing that women fought for in the 1970s to allow people to be with them. And the tradition before then was women labored alone. Mm -hmm. They gave birth alone. And and you really need emotional support during labor. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that emotional support, the easiest thing to do was, rather than deal with a bunch of women in labor, just drug them. And my second book was actually, is actually History of Labor Pain and the Use of Obstetric Anesthesia. And I can't exaggerate enough how heavily drugged women were throughout labor. In fact, obstetricians who I interviewed from that era, who practiced during that era, said being an obstetrician was more about treatment of drug confusion than about helping women give birth because women were so heavily drugged. And not only were they given constant narcotics, barbiturates, all through their labor, but when it came time to give birth, they were put under general anesthesia. Yeah. So I can't exaggerate enough how heavily drugged women were. And, you know, part of me says it's a wonder that babies survived. Literally, the reason we have the APGAR score with every, every mother knows is a quick way to gauge the well-being of a newborn, to see are they breathing okay, is their color good. The reason that was invented, Virginia Apgar was an anesthesiologist, and babies were being born so narcotized with their breathing so repressed. She invented the score to be able to judge which baby needed help breathing immediately so she could save that baby's life. And it was all the result of too much anesthesia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The twilight sleep era, I think, is is an is an era that is not a part of our cultural imagination right now. And when when I walk into undergraduate classrooms, I think there's so little understanding 
of contemporary practices, how those are rooted in some of those historical forces. I think there's very little understanding of the cascade of interventions that unfold where you might have an epidural to control pain, but then that might slow down labor. So then you're given Pitocin, which increases the pain, right? So it's this series of cascading interventions that oftentimes um, might end up in, in a cesarean that would not have been necessary had those interventions not been introduced early on. It, it, you're, you are exactly right. And I feel like if, if, if people knew that historical trajectory, we could really change the approach to birth because um, we, we really have messed with the birthing process. We've pathologized it and we've instilled so much fear into women that, um, you know, for the most part, um, you know, I, I was stunned when I was teaching my women's health history class for the history department because I was so excited, you know, to spend two weeks on childbirth. And, and I began by kind of just describing just the physiology of birth. How does it work? How does your cervix open up? You know, what, what's, what exactly happens during childbirth? What does it feel like to give birth? And rather than, it's mainly women who took the class. And rather than the women, I was anticipating so much excitement on their part and so many questions. And I looked back and I was just, they were just looking at me in complete horror. And one woman raised her hand and kind of voiced, I think, what everyone else was thinking. She said to me, you know, I want my epidural in the hospital parking lot. I don't want to feel any of that. That's what got me interested in the topic of my second book, because I came of age during the heyday of natural childbirth. And I suddenly said to myself, how did, how did we end up now with a new generation of women being so afraid of birth? So, uh, you know, I, I, I think all of this is fascinating and it is so culture bound. Mm -hmm. and, and when it comes to the cesarean section rate, the reason I got interested in that topic in particular, because here I've talked about how, you know, most births go very well. And yet today, one in three women who are going to give birth are going to have major abdominal surgery. They're going to have a cesarean section. Um, when we know that only about 5% of births, if left to its own devices, run into trouble at all, which is why you need a medical expert there, 5%. So how did we end up with a 33% cesarean section rate? Um, and again, it has to do, you know, I wrote an entire book about it, so I can't, it's too hard right. to answer that question. But but it really has to do with the fact that we now anticipate this pathology and in so many ways, as you just described, create it mm -hmm. by the use of Pitocin, by the use of the epidural, by the, and sometimes those things are necessary. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that, but mm -hmm. we shouldn't be doing anything unless it's medically necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's the experience of risk. That's, that's a part of your subtitle, but I think is key too to understanding the perhaps um, early introduction of some of those interventions, right, in terms of how we manage risk. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. And it goes back again to this, this you know, I trace it all to the conjoining of obstetrics and gynecology when, because that specialty began to define birth foremost as potentially pathological, as opposed to foremost, something women's bodies were made to do and do quite well. But when you start to be worrying about the, the pathology, that's when you start to elevate risk beyond anything that's real. And one of the key 
pieces of medical equipment that really took the path of the pathology of birth to a new level was the electronic fetal monitor. Mm-hmm. And that that machine has such a fascinating history because it was introduced. Now, normally we rely on evidence-based medicine. And normally we say to ourselves that no medication has been introduced, no diagnostic tool has been introduced unless it's been heavily tested. Well, the electronic fetal monitor was not, never, was not tested at all before hospitals adopted it. Um, It was adopted first in 1969, and the thought was, what harm could it possibly do? If we can monitor the fetal heartbeat throughout a labor, it could only help because we Mm. could rescue any baby in distress, and we could prevent all kinds of things. We could prevent cerebral palsy. We could prevent uh, stillbirth. We could prevent all kinds of damage to a baby if we could get it out very, very quickly if the heart rate goes down. Well, it turns out that the first tests on the electronic fetal monitor introduced in 1969 wasn't until 1976, seven long years later. And by then the C-section rate had started to go way up. Hmm. So they did this, um, what they should have done in the beginning. They finally did a randomized controlled trial where they randomized women to either be monitored with the electronic fetal monitor when they were in labor or do what they used to do. Simply have a doctor listen with the fetal stethoscope during labor about every 20 to 30 minutes just to check on the fetus's heartbeat. And what they discovered was, and this was ultimately done on 36,000 women over the course of about seven different studies. What they discovered was the electronic fetal monitor in no way improves outcomes. It doesn't lessen the number of stillbirths. The rates of cerebral palsy are exactly what they were in 1969. It never wiped out cerebral palsy. It doesn't um, increase APGAR scores. It doesn't limit um, admissions to the neonatal intensive care unit. It does nothing. The only thing it does is increase the cesarean section rate. Because when you see that dip in the monitor of that looks like there might be something wrong with the fetal heart rate, you immediately go to emergency cesarean section mode, and suddenly a cesarean section rate that was between 2.5% and 4% in the U.S. because of the electronic fetal monitor went way up. You should see the graph. I I have it in my cesarean section book. Uh It went up so quickly, solely traceable to the electronic fetal monitor. The only thing it does, and obstetricians will admit this, The only thing that machine does is increase the cesarean section rate unnecessarily. Doesn't Mm. improve outcomes at all. And, um, you know, it's a good lesson in evidence-based medicine, and it's a good lesson in how hard it is to get rid of a tool once you've accepted it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We live in a culture where we're also guided by this broader master narrative, if you will, that technology is progress and inherently good. And that shapes how we organize care. It shapes what's funded as legitimate care and what's not. Um, And it's really hard to step outside of that, right? Especially when you're a soon-to-be mother or father and you have someone telling you your child is at risk and and you're in a position where you you will do anything to save that child. Oh, my goodness. I actually had... um One, uh, you know, I've interviewed many, many, many obstetricians in the course of my research, 
And one of them said to me, yes, I mean, there's no one more vulnerable than a laboring woman. If you tell a laboring woman, look, we need to cut off your right arm in order to save that baby, the woman will just say to you, just give me anesthesia, take my arm. You're, yeah. you know, you're, of course, that's, that's a wild exaggeration. You know, but the point is exactly the one that you made, that when you tell a, a mother, we're doing this to save your baby, just sign on the dotted line, what mother wouldn't do that? Yeah. Um, of course, of course you would. But, you know, to your point of the fact that we think of technology as always equaling progress, I, you're absolutely right. I, but I also think we're becoming aware that that so is not true mm. because we have damaged our planet. Um, we, have, we have damaged everything about our air, our water, our, our, and now our climate, the very survival of our planet has been destroyed by our misuse of technology. Mm-hmm. So, so um, hopefully, and hopefully we can ex- extrapolate that to all kinds of things, including something as fundamental as childbirth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have hope when I listen to my daughter and her friends. I, ha- I have hope with future generations in a, a different awareness and consciousness than was dominant 20 years ago um, when they were born. And um, that that gives me a hopeful outlook, <laughs> right, for, for our future where people are able to question the limits of um, what we privilege as expertise and listening to one's own body and knowing one's own body and knowing knowing that you're an expert in your own right. I think one of the the fascinating things I've been thinking about after reading your your essay and in anticipating this conversation, I was just thinking about how how the roles of a care provider, the roles of women and their partners differ when that that birth is medicalized um, or pathologized, or if it's a social birth, um, to use the term that you introduced, that the the role of the woman in that process strikes me as very different, right? and and their agency and and their empowerment seems different to me in those contexts. You're so right because. In a real social birth, the woman is the center of attention, as it should be. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, for example, in, in my, my, my discourse on electronic fetal monitoring, what happens when you have that machine in the room is that the machine becomes the center of attention. Yeah. And, and literally, the machine is at the woman's bedside, but every hospital now also has central monitoring stations so that the obstetric residents are not with the women anymore, not learning about labor, but they're in that room looking at all the monitor strips up on the screen so that they can they can watch every woman labor simultaneously. But then it's the machine that gets the focus, and it's not the woman. Mm-hmm. And and think of the message that sends to the woman who's in labor as well. You know, I've had I've had uh, women describe to me how 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 scary the the sounds of the the beeping and the buzzing of the monitor and the lights flashing. And other women describe it as very comforting. They feel like that means my baby's okay. The baby's doing fine. So women even experience that machinery differently. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we're not it really the woman's reactions to labor can tell you just as much if not more than that machine would if if doctors would just go back to paying attention and making the woman the center of attention during a birth mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. amen amen coming full circle jackie um 
I hope I can get a little bit more personal with you because you're now a grandmother and you've now had the experience of social birthing with your friends, with yourself, and with your daughter, daughter Cora. Can you talk to us about that intergenerational experience and what that was like for you? You know, I think one of the things historians do is that we we see we actually see time that that we don't we don't just we don't see time as one static moment we see it as um you know we see we we see it all in front of us we see exactly what caused women for example to begin to depend on bottles and animal milk we see why that happened and then we see the effects of that, we see the effects of that in so many multiple, multiple dimensions in terms of what it did to public health, what it did to, to, to the way women cared for their children, um, what it did to individual children's health. Um, so, you know, we see many things at once. I mean, we're trained as historians to do that. And we're trained to see, to see the development over time and not just one moment in time. And I think what you described for me on a personal level as being with my friends when they gave birth before I was a mom, having those friends be at my birth and help me when I was in labor, and then being there for my daughter. It was, it was one of those moments uh, or one of those experiences when my historical training and being able to see in all those dimensions and ramifications at once really entered my personal life. Mm-hmm. As first a friend, then a mother, and now a grandmother. And it's just been, I just, I feel so fortunate that I've been able not only to be a mom and be a grandmother, but also to do what I do. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, it's just been um, endlessly rewarding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I can help, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about women's health. If I can, if I can make it better for other women, and if, um, you know, I can, I can change the way physicians practice medicine. To be a historian teaching at a medical school, what a gift. Because I'm not just writing in the abstract. I'm training physicians. So if I can get physicians to be more humble, be less arrogant about what medicine can do, and especially if I can get them to admit what medicine can't do, if I can get them to recognize the good medicine can do as well as the huge harms medicine can do. Um, what a gift for a historian to have that kind of an influence on contemporary medical practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our future physicians will be better for it. Um, thank you. Thank you, Jackie, for your work. Thank, thank you for letting me talk about it. Oh, before we wrap up, I do want to invite you to tell listeners a little bit about Lifespan which is the podcast that you host and produce. And of course, there are many women's health issues that are featured on that podcast, but it goes beyond cesarean sections and breastfeeding. You've, you've talked about organ donation and end-of-life experiences and living with chronic illnesses. Can you talk to us about kind of what your goals are with the podcast? Yeah, the full title of the podcast is Lifespan Stories of Illness, Accident, and Recovery. <clears throat> so definitely people in health communications will be 
incredibly interested in the um, <clears throat> in the podcast. Um, my goal for the podcast really was to 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 teach people about our healthcare system through patient stories. Mm. So we do all kinds of stories. I mean, I, I've done a story on burn accidents and, as you said, organ donation and uh, a, a remarkable story of someone as a teenager who fell off a cliff uh, 150 feet um, and had to be medevaced and was in the hospital for months and months. Um, so these are these are really rich, deeply personal stories of patients. And, um, you know, I kind of guide it. Because of my knowledge, I kind of guide these stories toward, and what lesson can we learn about the healthcare system through this story and the way we, mm-hmm. the way we fund healthcare and the way doctors view medicine and practice medicine. So um, again, I feel, you know, it goes way, well beyond women's health, the podcast does. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've talked about race and racism in medicine on the podcast through the experiences of medical students. Um, so it's really there. Um, the, the ultimate goal of the podcast is to empower patients to, so that they can learn about the healthcare system so that they, they really um, understand more about health policy and also more about their own, their own uh, personal approach to health and the best way to talk to physicians so that they can really get the most out of both office visits and medical care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It only takes listening to a couple of episodes to realize too that no story stands alone. And sometimes those stories overlap at corners and sometimes they almost cover one another completely in their resonance. But stepping back, those those stories are interconnected. And what's so compelling is that you invite listeners into the life world of another person and you invite them to try to imagine that. And it's difficult to walk away from an episode without um, questions and ideas about how that story can spark dialogue for you, right? Or you and your family, or a broader public dialogue, right? And and potential changes in in public policy, even. Absolutely, and and I'm so grateful to the guests who agree to do this because I the stories really are deeply personal. We're, we're working now on two episodes, one on losing a lifetime partner. So the people who who shared those stories, um, you know, really had to dredge up um, an enormous pain, and another really fascinating one on um, <clears throat> alcoholism. Um, where um, someone talks about their addiction to alcohol and how now they're a recovering alcoholic and also a substance abuse counselor. And we also have his wife talk about his alcoholism from her experience and what that did to their their family life, their marriage. Um, so that really, again, deeply personal stories with fascinating interplay on um, mm-hmm. how it not just affected one person, but how it might have affected multiple people in that person's close, intimate circle. Mm-hmm. It is a gift when others trust you to uh, learn with their story and co-create and share that story with broader publics. And um, I too feel that gratitude and I extend it to you, Jackie. Thank you for your willingness to, to join me today, but also just for the inspiration you've provided for 
for the past um, 18 years that that I've been at OU, I remember early on serving on a dissertation committee and uh, being inspired by your brilliance and your commitment to rigor, but also with an ethic of care. And so thank you for for the work that you do um, as a scholar, as a colleague, um, and for, for sharing some of the more intimate, personal dimensions of that work with us today. Oh, you're, you're so welcome, Lynn. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. For guests, thanks for joining Dr. Jackie Wolf and I on this episode of Defining Moments. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast WOUB. As I mentioned earlier, we are coupling this conversation with two episodes of Lifespan, the podcast that's hosted and produced by Jackie. On our Facebook page, I'll provide links to these episodes, as well as a link to her recent article in Health Communication. Meanwhile, remember that her most recent book, Cesarean Section, An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence, originally published in 2018 by Johns Hopkins University Press, is now available um, via paperback. So we encourage you to um, dig deeper with, with these ideas. As always, go in peace and love one another. Mm-hmm.